Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Harbin here with you back home in Portland, Oregon, in our studio here. And so glad to be back home here with uh, Sean and Nate and Joyce and Louise. And great to be back. I want to start out with this question. When the economy crashes, it, we just entered the longest expansionary phase in the history of the United States literally going back to the George Washington administration. And I have been saying since 2016, you know, I was predicting that the economy would crash in 2016. And it turns out that 2016 was, in fact, the year that the, the economy stopped growing, except for debt. And so what's been happening since 2016, three years now, and really in some ways since 2015, maybe four years, is that the only growth that's happening in the economy has been happening because either government is borrowing money, you know, Trump borrowed one and a half trillion, for example. I mean, we're at $22 trillion in our national debt now, which is pretty huge. It's about the same size as our annual GDP, maybe even a little larger. And number one, government borrowing. Number two, corporate borrowing. Corporate borrowing is at an all-time high. And number three, individual borrowing, family borrowing which is at an all-time high. And all of these numbers now, as a percentage of the economy, I mean, you can't compare dollars to dollars, but basically relative to where we were in 1929, the last time there was a major crash, we hit 1929-style numbers about two years ago, and we are now in the overshoot of that. So this isn't just some speculative question. Do you think that America is going to move to the hard right when the economy crashes? Are we going to move to the FDR left, or are we going to move to the corporate oligarchy middle? The thing that we didn't have in the 1930s, which brought us FDR progressivism, you know, FDR literally saying the government will be the employer of last resort. If you can't get a job, the government will provide you with a job. If you lose your job, the government will provide you with unemployment insurance. If you are old and poor, this was Social Security, of course. The government will provide you with a stipend on which you can live. Basically, uh, you know, FDR, I think, sometimes referred to it as a pension, essentially, because everybody understood what the pension was. 
what we didn't have then that we do have now is a corporate media that persists in putting its thumb on the scale. It just constantly wants to see politics done as sports and doesn't really want any kind of a serious discussion about issues. It's, oh, did Kamala Harris knock Joe Biden upside the head? Well, what does that have to do with the issues? Let's talk about the issue. She raised the issue of busing. He raised the issue of busing. So let's have a conversation about race in America. No, the media doesn't want to do that. Although Fareed Zakaria's uh, program on CNN last night, and I'm sorry, I only missed the last part of it because I just got back, you know, flying back from Minnesota. But the last 15, 20 minutes of it was pretty shocking. But frankly, the thing that concerns me is that we had an FDR left in the United States from 1932 through the end of the Johnson administration. And in a way, Jimmy Carter, I mean, you know, the Jimmy Carter presidency was still, he was still singing the songs of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal and the Great Society. Although in the last two years of his presidency, he did start some massive deregulation in response to high inflation and a soft economy. I think he thought that this might work. It would have been sold for years and years and years by the right-wing think tanks. But now we have this kind of corporate oligarchy well, we do have a corporate oligarchy. I mean, this was brought to us by the Supreme Court, the Buckley decision in 76, the Bellotti decision in 78, Citizens United in 2010, McCutcheon in 2013, as I recall. And what all of these decisions basically did was say dark money can just pour into our politics, whether it's lobbying, whether it's campaigning specifically for a candidate, whether it's going after ballot issues. For example, two years ago, Washington state had a carbon tax on their ballot. It had widespread support across the state. When I first got on the ballot, it was a very modest carbon tax. It wasn't going to affect individuals all that much. And in fact, it would have recycled money back to individuals. But then the fossil fuel industry came in and spent tens of millions of dollars. I mean, I could not watch a program on television. You know, being here in Portland, we're in both the Portland and the Vancouver, Washington state markets. And Vancouver's one of the major cities, one of the probably five or six major cities in, in, in Washington state. And so we were seeing, you know, we see the ads that are directed at Washington state here in, in Portland. And every single show had this former Republican secretary of state who looked like Mr. Rogers and talked like Mr. Rogers. He seems like such a nice guy. And he never identified himself as a Republican. He said, I'm the former Secretary of State. And I just wanted to tell you that this carbon tax will destroy our economy. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy the American middle class. It's going to ruin the economy. You know, and, and uh, you know, these are not his exact quotes, but this was the essence of what he was saying. And sure enough, after the fossil fuel industry spent tens of millions of dollars on this thing, and the people who wanted the carbon tax were like, you know, just average people. They didn't have money to buy for advertising. The carbon tax went down in flames. And then you see Chuck Todd interviewing Jay Inslee, who was the governor of Washington State at the time, saying, well, you know, your carbon tax in, in, in Washington State didn't work out, and that's the state you run. If you couldn't do it in your own state, how can you do it anywhere else? You know, without pointing out that it was millions and millions and millions, you know, basically a wall-to-wall -wall media blitz by the fossil fuel industry in Washington State that took this thing down. Well, Chuck Todd's never going to point that out, and neither is anybody else in the media. So... Might we end up with kind of a corporate middle, which is sort of what we had during the last two Democratic presidential administrations, or are we going to go hard right like we did with Reagan and like we did with Bush and Trump, 
I guess the middle also would be the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. He actually raised taxes and, and did cap and trade to get rid of acid rain. George Bush the elder was an old-fashioned Republican, the last of them. They're gone. Which is sort of like the 1992 version of the New Democrats and the New Democratic Coalition right now. And the blue dogs. I mean, you know, you've got these blue dog Democrats who are really the tail that increasingly the tail that wags the Democratic Party. And they're all pushing for basically a corporate oligarchy controlling our political machine. So which direction do you think we're going? We have seen basically kind of three different types of, at least in my lifetime, I've seen three different types of governance in the United States. The old-fashioned FDR kind of New Deal Great Society governance. That lasted from the time I was born in 1951 right up until 1980 with Reaganism. And then from 1981 until 1992, we saw, or from 1981 until 1989, we saw hardcore right-wing Reaganism. And then from 89 with George Herbert Walker Bush, through the Clinton administration, through, the, through 2001, we saw a kind of moderate, I, I don't even want to call it Eisenhowerism, because Eisenhower was actually a fan of the New Deal. I mean, Eisenhower was more progressive than, than uh, you know, well, certainly more progressive than any of the blue dog Democrats right now. And so then we saw this kind of middle of the road thing, and then Bush came in, and we went back to hard right militarism, and then Obama came in, and we went back to kind of the middle of the road thing, and then Trump came in, and now we've gone to hard right pseudo fascism. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Trump just came back from the G20, where he took a little side trip. It was in Seoul, South Korea, so he took a little side trip to meet. His uh, good buddy, uh, uh, the most brutal dictator in the world, Kim Jong-un, who apparently had his staff that organized the last meeting with Trump executed. You know, it just occurred to me, maybe he's not the most brutal dictator in the world. I mean, Mohammed bin Salman had, you know, 20 some odd people beheaded recently, and one, one of them was actually crucified out in the desert. And of course, he chopped up, apparently on his orders, this is uh, what the UN is saying now, chopped up Mr. Khashoggi the Washington Post journalist, and Donald Trump is like, yeah, you know, they're going to buy $400 billion worth of stuff from us, so, you know, we'll take their money and we'll take their oil. and But this G20 trip for Trump, it was amazing. Yesterday I was sitting in the airport and Fox News was on the monitor and the sound was off, but they had the closed captioning on and I was reading closed caption. And they were literally alternating between on the one hand, they would have, you know, Donald Trump makes history, meeting with Kim Jong-un. Uh, Donald Trump steps into history. Donald Trump, you know, most historic president, you know, like this. And then they would go to, you know, a clip of, uh, they had uh, uh, Congressman Tim Ryan had apparently been interviewed and had made some points that they didn't like. And so then they would go to basically ridiculing Congressman Ryan and ridiculing Democrats. And so it was back and forth, you know, praising Trump, hating Democrats, praising Trump, hating Democrats. It was just... You know, watching it with the sound off and watching the, the you know, the chirons and the, and the uh, uh, closed captioning was just astonishing. But it really was a failure, Trump's trip to the G20. Uh, he gave up, he, he gave uh, Kim a major propaganda victory and got nothing for it. He gave concessions to China. He caved in on Huawei and got nothing for it. He ignored the murder of an American journalist, you know, Khashoggi, you know, hanging out with Mohammed bin Salman and basically high-fiving the guy. He joked with Vladimir Putin about Russia's election interference and made it pretty clear that he still believes Putin over U.S. intelligence agencies. 
and his love of authoritarian leaders and his disdain for our traditional liberal democracy, and I don't mean liberal like I'm a liberal, I mean liberal democracy the way that it's actually, the, the way that Vladimir Putin was talking about it when he said it's dead around the world. That was created in this country, in Philadelphia, in the summer of 1787. It was ratified in 1789 when this all started. But the liberal democracy is the United States. It is Europe. And Putin says, yeah, you know, it's dying. And Trump says, yeah, Putin was right. So back to the economy. We just entered the longest expansion ever. The economy grew just 2.3% a year since June 2009, the beginning, the end of the, of, the, of the Bush recession. That's half the average 4.3 growth rate of the previous 10 expansions since World War II. Over the past 10 years, 60% of all income has gone to the top of 1%, people making over a half million dollars a year. Inflation-adjusted salaries for secondary school teachers, for example, just as a kind of canary in the coal mine, um, since 2009 have gone up three-tenths of 1%. That's it. And CEOs, their salaries have gone up 65% since 2009. Life expectancy and fertility rates are actually dropping You're among the lower. to the Tom Hartman program. Among the middle class and lower middle class in the United States, we're actually seeing a drop in life expectancy and a rise in suicide rates, an alarming one. When life expectancy starts dropping and when fertility rates, the number of children that people are having starts dropping, and this is for the bottom half of Americans and maybe even the bottom 60, 70% of Americans, and more adult, young adults are living with their parents and delaying marriage. Those are typically things that you only see during depressions or serious, serious economic recessions. And yet that's what's going on right now. This should give us great cause for concern. Donald Trump promised that he was going to ease the burden of student loans. Another thing is screwing up our economy. Instead, this is what he campaigned on in 2016. Remember, oh yeah, we're going to deal with student loans. It's, 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 it's all good. Instead, his budget proposed the elimination of subsidized student loans and cuts to other programs that help students pay tuition. His Department of Education ended its sharing of information with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau on the $1.3 trillion in student loans that are out there. Therefore, that information is no longer available to be used to sue predatory loan companies. The Trump administration sought to offer defrauded borrowers only partial loan forgiveness. It's supposed to be, if you've been defrauded by something like Trump University, you're supposed to get all your money back or you're supposed to get your loan forgiven, right? Because you were the victim of fraud. And so Trump changed that. So yeah, yeah, you get a little bit back, but not all of it. If you got, you know, screwed by Trump University or something like it, a fraudulent educational institution. And they have uh, reinvigorated the predatory for-profit education industry. He promised he'd deliver great education and instead he's undermining our public schools. He's cut billions out of the education department, cut grants for schools for textbooks and school safety efforts. He selected an education secretary who is outright hostile to school, public schools and teachers. He's uh, chipping away at civil rights on, you know, reducing campus sexual assault guidelines in favor of boosting the rights of the accused, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it just goes on and on. There's more. We'll continue. At, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get into this stuff as we continue through the program. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, do you know what the worst sound in the world is? It's your alarm clock if you haven't gotten enough sleep. And no matter how much you love that song on your phone, when it wakes you in the morning, you just want it to stop. Not only that, 
sleeping is, I mean, sleeping is such a personal thing. You know, like I like my bed warm. Louise likes her bed cold. And it's just like, well, imagine this scenario. The surface temperature of your bed gradually adjusts to wake you up gently and naturally without the sound of the alarm. Imagine now waking up rested and alert. This is not science fiction. This is the new Pod by 8Sleep. The Pod by 8Sleep is a high-tech bed designed specifically to help you achieve optimal sleep fitness. And there's a reason why Time Magazine calls 8Sleep one of the best inventions of the year. It combines dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to enhance your rest and your recovery. It learns your sleep habits and adjusts the temperature automatically. That means if you like your bed cool and your partner likes the bed warm, now you can have both at the same time in a crazy comfortable bed. And no more alarm clocks. To celebrate Independence Day, get a free gravity cooling blanket plus free shipping with your pod purchase, a $300 value free. The offer ends Monday, July 8th. Visit 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's 8sleep.com slash Tom. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. Let's pick up some of your calls and some of your thoughts. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what are your thoughts on this? The economy is a, a very interesting topic, but I think what's going on is that we have an entrenchment of power. There was a lot of very powerful forces in the 1930s to control the situation, but they have so much control, and it is worldwide. Uh, I'm reading, rereading a book by Tariq Ali called The Extreme Center, and it's very dismal, but I think he accurately paints a picture of where we are politically. And yes, we have an economy, political, not a political economy. It is something that I think what is going to happen is that we will have to have a crisis, that the whole system will have to fall apart. And that might even mean uh, that we have a fascist-like period in this country uh, where there is just total control until people get sick of it, because the information isn't out there. Um, free speech TV, you do a great job. There are a lot of people on the periphery, but to get through to a lot of the disenchanted millions of people who, yes, they're, they're choosing opioids, they're uh, becoming alcoholics, their life expectancy is decreasing. And, you know, there's some hopeful signs, but how do you change our political structure so that you can actually tackle these problems? And ironically, capitalism will fail itself then. And FDR saved capitalism. And, you know, I do believe that there are some good things that come out of capitalism, but unrestrained, this is where leads an elite. We're going in a feudal direction rather than in more democracy and increasing middle class prosperity that we saw before Ronald Reagan. Right, as in F-E-U-D-A-L, not F-U-T-I-L-E. Yeah. I agree, John, and, and you're essentially singing the song that I laid out in 300 pages of my book, The Crash of 2016. Yep, I have uh, that also. Yeah, so you know what I'm talking about, and I, I think we're of a similar mind. So, yeah, thank you very much for the call, John. Always nice to hear from you. Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hey, Tom, how's it going? Um, I'd like to ask you a question about FDR's New Deal, but before I begin, you know, I just want to say uh, I'm not being paid by any right-wing think tank. Those numbers, I, I had never heard of the uh, American Action Forum. 
So that was just the first Google result about the Green New Deal. But my question is, um, so, you know, I, I admire what he did during the Great Depression. Franklin Roosevelt, you know, he uh, spent money using Keynes' demand-side economics to put people back to work to create demand in the economy. So my question is, yeah, my question is, um, what should the percentage, you know, what should the government spending as a percentage of the gross domestic product be? Or how do we, how much do we spend to do that without running into the problem of hyperinflation? That's my question. Well, hyperinflation comes about as a consequence. uh, There's two ways that you can create hyperinflation. The first is by debasing your currency, by printing more dollars than you need, basically. And that's never going to happen in the United States. And that has never happened in any developed country. That's what happened in Zimbabwe, right? That's what happened in Germany after World War I when the Treaty of Versailles imposed this huge punishing fine, basically, on Germany, where Germany had to pay hundreds of billions of dollars of Deutschmarks in order to satisfy the Treaty of Versailles. And so they intentionally debased their currency because the amount was specified in the treaty, as I recall. And so they could pay off that treaty with dollars that were worth pennies, if that makes sense. But the main way that you have inflation, the way that we had inflation in the United States in the 1970s, for example, and there have been two or three times in our history where we've had inflation as a consequence of this, is when a commodity that is absolutely essential to the economy becomes unavailable or is lost in its availability. Typically, in other countries, that's food. In the United States in the 70s, it was oil. And so when a commodity that you can't have a country work without becomes scarce, the price of that commodity goes up. The price of that commodity going up drives up the price of everything else, particularly if that commodity is associated with everything else. In other words, you can't live if you don't have food. You can't have an economy that functions if you don't have oil, at least, because we haven't made the conversion to solar. And so government spending is not what produces inflation unless it's so great that, like I said, it debases the currency. And that has never happened in the history of the United States, and I don't think it ever will. So the larger question then, Dennis, becomes how much of the economy do you want the government to be? In Canada, the government is almost 40% of the economy. In the United States, it's about 20%. Why? Because in Canada, it pays for the health care system. It doesn't run it, but it pays for it. And Canadians, and and by the way, this is true of most European countries. Most European countries, what you find is that the government sector is between 30 and 40% of total economic activity, whereas in the United States, it's around 20%. If you're simply shifting healthcare expenses from for-profit companies that are skimming hundreds of billions of dollars in profit off the top for their rich buddies and move that to government, it's not only not going to create inflation, it's actually going to lower prices and it's going to save the entire economy money, even though you've moved it out of the private sector and into the public sector. That's meaningless in terms of whether or not you have inflation. It's not more dollars chasing fewer goods or fewer goods being chased by more dollars, you know, deflation or inflation. So there's not a magic number. It's like, what do you think the government should do? Thanks, Dennis. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great by Professor Harvey J. Kay, who's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. This is from the introduction, page one. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. 
Now, after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequality and intensifying insecurities, and of denying our democratic impulses and yearnings, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from the economic destruction of the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all that in the face of powerful, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, and despite all their own faults and failings, by making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Now, when all they fought for is under siege, and we too find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for, now we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedoms. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. This weeks earlier, he had defeated the Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term. But Roosevelt now faced a far greater challenge, one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis power, Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, Imperial Japan. And with war already raging East and West, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to the danger. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency, he gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom, and government of the people, by the people, and for the people. FDR knew about crises, but he knew as well what Americans could accomplish even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of New York Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences and encounters in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to defiantly state that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and then go on to proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Armed with this faith and confidence and propelled by the popular energies that his words and elections elicited, he determinedly pursued the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, president and people severely tested each other, made mistakes and regrettable compromises, and suffered defeats and disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging each other to live up to their finest ideals, Roosevelt and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible. 
confronting fierce conservative reactionary and corporate opposition. They not only rejected authoritarianism, but also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in American government and public life and radically extending American freedom, equality, and democracy. They subjected big business to public account and regulation, empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people, mobilized and organized labor unions, fought for their rights, broadened and leveled the we and we the people, established a social security system, expanded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, cultivated the arts, and refashioned popular culture. And while much remained to be done, imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Standing before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day, the president surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. He told them straightforwardly that Americans were now confronting a moment unprecedented in the history of the United States. A moment unprecedented because never before had American security been as seriously threatened from without. And he refused to appease those who threatened our nation's safety. The book is The Fight for the Four Freedoms by Harvey King. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. We've been talking about what happens if the economy goes down. Will it flip us fascist? Will it flip us back to FDR demand side economics? What we had prior to 1981. Will it strengthen the sort of corporate run middle kind of politics? Where do we go with this? You know, I wrote this book, The Crash of 2016, back in 2012 or thereabouts, 2011, I think I started on it. And basically saying that it's going to take a crisis of some kind to bring Americans together, particularly around a progressive vision. That historically has always been what's happened. The initial efforts at reconstruction, very progressive, that came out of the crisis of the Civil War. Uh, the, the initial attempts to create our country, very progressive, came out of the crisis of, of the economic crash of the 1700s and the, and the Revolutionary War. The New Deal came out of the economic crisis of the Great Depression. We'll see if the economy falls apart or if they continue to hold it together with bailing wire and bubblegum, which is very much what they're doing right now, by the way. As I, as I mentioned earlier, if you take out the debt, our economy has not grown since 2015. But then it gets even worse. Now Donald Trump is promoting a health care agenda, which is going to increase costs lower coverage and make it so that health insurance companies can once again take away your health insurance if you get sick or if they discover you have pre-existing conditions. In Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, major swing states, 52% of the voters say they trust the Democrats more than Trump. I'm surprised it's that low, frankly. 72% of respondents in those states would not vote for a candidate who supports health plans that would eliminate protections for people with pre-existing conditions. 77% said they wouldn't vote for a candidate unless his health insurance plan covers prescription drugs, which has been part of the plans for Medicare for All for a long, long time. Trump's health care sabotage has already resulted in higher costs. His efforts to destroy the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, have sent the uninsured rates skyrocketing. This is as a result of Trump's policies. Patients' out-of-pocket costs for inpatient services. This is from Modern Healthcare Magazine. Patients' out-of-pocket costs for inpatient services increased by 14% on average between 2017 and 2018. This is according to a new report from TransUnion Healthcare. The Los Angeles Times reports 
that enrollment in Obamacare in, in the Affordable Care Act fell by a stunning 30% in that period, 27, 2018, to the same period a year earlier under President Obama when outreach advertising and hands-on enrollment assistance was robust, that it causes a 1% or 2% increase in premiums. Trump has basically shut down the federal government helping sign people up for Obamacare. He's made it really, really difficult for people to sign up. The result of that is that fewer people are signing up when the insurance companies have a smaller pool of people and more uninsured people. A smaller pool of people means that your premiums are going to go up because you know they've, they've got to cover that. And then you've got this lawsuit from these 34 Republican states that has been joined by Donald Trump to end the Affordable Care Act altogether, which would eliminate all protections against pre-existing conditions. It's mind-boggling what this would do. And Americans are still struggling to get through with this. AT&T depicts Trump's broken promises to protect workers. <laughs> this is amazing. When Trump got his tax cut, he said, hey, AT&T plans to increase U.S. capital spending $1 billion and provide a $1,000 bonus to more than 200,000 employees. That's, that's, those are Trump's words. He says, when we first had a pass, it started with AT&T. We might as well give them credit. And again, in another speech, he said, I wouldn't say it's a total surprise, but one of the big things that happened after our tax cut is AT&T and others came out very early and said they were going to pay thousands and thousands of people um, more to work for their companies. But turns out AT&T only passed along 1% of their tax windfall to workers, and that was in the form of a one-time bonus about 1% of the $20 billion that they got. And then what do they do after they did these one-time bonuses? They quietly laid off thousands of U.S. workers. Many employees will be getting laid off in the coming weeks. AT&T is eliminating thousands of jobs across the United States, including 30 in central Indiana, including communication workers of America. The company claims they're cutting 2,000 jobs in Dallas, 1,800 jobs in Texas and Oklahoma, 23,000 jobs have been cut. Hang on just a second. The Guardian reports AT&T has eliminated 23,328 jobs since the tax cut bill was passed. Amazing. You know, now that uh, Louise and I are pushing our late 60s here, uh, under eye puffiness and bags under the eyes and all that kind of stuff is kind of something you start noticing, right? And uh, for a couple of years, I people, you know, people have recommended everything from hemorrhoid cream to tea bags, but <laughs> frankly, none of them work. Uh, what really works well, and what Louise absolutely loves this stuff, is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet or wrinkles or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to triplexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's triplexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm, it really works.
let's uh, pick up your phone calls here. Susan in Alachua, Florida. Hey, Susan, thanks for watching us on Free Speech via Roku. What's up? Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I wanted to let you know that I am yearning for a an FDR-type president. Yeah, me too. And I think Elizabeth Warren would be that person. Um, if not her, then Camilla Harris. I really think that we need to go back to big government. Mm-hmm. I think government has to be first and foremost, and the Republicans don't want to have anything to do with government. They're just being bought off by millionaires. So. Yeah. Thank you for saying it so elegantly. Pam in Fort Collins, Colorado. Hey, Pam, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thank you so much. And thank you so much for what you do. I did see your film, Ice on Fire, and it was fantastic. I really highly recommend it to anybody. It actually did give me hope that there are a lot of things that we can do, but it also really highlighted that it's the global oligarchs, and Trump is part of that, that is keeping us from becoming more progressive. And to answer your question about how do we go back to an FDR presidency, I think Bernie is the only answer for that. In fact, Trevor Noah had a great quote. He said, how can you ask Bernie to pass the torch when he invented the fire? And he's been fighting this fight for so long, and he knows these oligarchs. I just think he'll be so strong and be able to stand up to them. That said, you said this, and many of your callers have said this, we do have a wealth of talent in the Democratic Party, and I wish they would get together and really go after the Senate and state legislatures. I've read several articles, and you've talked about it, the Koch brothers and McConnell, rather than focusing on the presidency so much, they're focusing on the Senate and state legislatures. And I think we need to have a whole game plan, and I think Stacey Abrams would be the perfect running mate for Bernie, and I wholeheartedly agree with everybody else saying, like Tulsi Gabbard for Defense Secretary, um, Elizabeth Warren. I really love her, her idea. She needs to stay in the Senate to write those policies that she's so well articulated. So, well, I, I'm hopeful, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, I am too. I am too. And I'm very aware. I mean, you know, I wrote the book, Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. And then Last Hours of Humanity that talks about how this could be the end of human civilization and even the human race, you know, these games that we're playing with the climate. And yet, I am hopeful, too. So, uh, Pam, thank you for the call, and thank you for your very thoughtful uh, insights there. May in Annandale, Virginia. Hey, May, what's on your mind today? This thing, uh, capitalism, I think what's... Uh, there's so much that you guys have talked about. My head is reeling. Mm. Obviously, we're in an era where good is having to stand up for itself, you know, and there's always the devil's advocate at the door. But I think as a nation, this thing where we are consistently being divided, and I can see this administration catering to supremacists because the closed-minded setting, you know, that grabbing onto and hearing a narrative that they want to hear in the first place. Uh, But these forms of control, when you look at it historically, you know, they go back. They go back even before us. They go back to even what the Plotagenists. And I think what the public needs to start looking at to understand, because I heard a young man say something, and he was disparaging the Constitution. And I don't think people understand exactly what it is for and how it is meant to play into us as a nation and for our protection. 
And, you know, the nobles and the hierarchy, the royals, were always using the lower echelon to serve their purposes, you know, to use their lives to serve their purposes. And I think what we're having now, especially, I don't know if you want to call it a corporate coup, a regime change, whatever, that it's this sleight of hand that's consistent especially through media, and, you know, you touched a big one right there with media, because it's also on social media that we have to be careful of, because these newer kids, you know, uh, those of us that are older, you know, like 50, 60 and up, we have that frame of reference to fall back on, but they don't. Hmm. To me, I've always looked at it, and I had to explain it to somebody that was older than myself, who basically right now uh, is a Republican. And I mentioned to them that, you know, they grew up with the New Deal. They grew up in an era where things were functioning how they were supposed to. I believe in what's called a practical capitalism, where it's capitalism and it's married with social programs. Because, as the Constitution says, we are equal and we have the right to pursue happiness. Well, when I look at that, the pursuit of happiness to me is the right to prosperity, that we all have the right to these opportunities to prosper. And when you have a certain group that is keeping the other down so that they can reap the most of those rewards, of course, they're shortening those on the bottom, and they start using them, which is what it goes back historically. This is what the Constitution is for, was for us to get away from that system when everyone came up. Tragically, though, it's been badly twisted by the Supreme Court. I mean, the Buckley decision in 76 and and Citizens United, it's it's, uh, it's air. Oh, Citizens United was awful. It was horrid. And that's just the beginning. I mean, you know, the Heller decision twisting the Second Amendment. There's just, there's been case after case after case made. You know, we need to address these things. May, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Your points were very well made. So, extraordinary news now that the first quarter is over and we're getting the results in from the Fed. It turns out that, uh, as the Axios newsletter notes, bankers are taking cover. We're seeing the highest level of credit card delinquencies since 2012. There was a downturn then. Uh, It's mostly being driven by people 18 to 29, or a lot of it is, also people over 50. We're finding credit card interest rates are super high now. They're, they're higher than they've been in quite some time. It's really extraordinary. I mean, it, this was illegal until the Richard Nixon presidency. Meanwhile, the U.S. debt is over a trillion dollars higher than it was because of the GOP tax scam. And U.S. cardholders are expected to pay $125 billion just in interest payments this year to credit card companies. Check it out. We've got a special rant on it just for our members over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Bernie's op-ed is pretty remarkable where he talks about what is going on in the United States and how badly we have gone down. He says the top 10 drug companies repeatedly investigated for price fixing and other potentially illegal actions made nearly $70 billion in profits last year, even as Americans paid the most per capita among developed nations for their prescription medicine. Top executives in the fossil fuel industry spent hundreds of millions on campaign contributions to elect candidates while denying the reality of climate change. Major corporations don't pay federal taxes because of a rigged system. And then he quotes FDR. Wages in the United States have been stagnant for over 40 years. Today, the wealthiest three families in the country own more wealth than the bottom half of the American people, and the top 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 90%. 
You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Back with your calls on the Tom Hartman Program, where we speak the truth some multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know all about. Tony in Shirley, New York. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech. There's a big thing. I'm, I'm not seeing very many people follow the Huawei issue within the United States and how the Trump administration has banned all purchases regarding any 5G networks without any evidence whatsoever as to what, in fact, they're claiming that they're doing. But I do see something significant. I do see the T-Mobile and Sprint merger and the, and the assurances that they're going to expand 5G networks. The fact that T-Mobile is expending a lot of money staying in the Trump post in Washington, D.C. R.J. Pai uh, just recently okayed this $26 billion merger. I'm curious as to whether or not, in your opinion, you feel as if this is basically a coordinated measure by the Trump administration to try to have this measure go through and to basically place China as the quote-unquote boogeyman in this situation in order to have this pump through. Yeah. There actually is evidence that Huawei's telephones and their telecom equipment can feed data back to the Chinese government. Uh, you know, Huawei was started uh, in part by the Chinese government. It's a, it is the largest or this maybe the second largest provider of telecommunications equipment in the world now because of subsidies uh, and tariffs, uh, you know, maintained and sustained by the Chinese government. The only other company in the world that makes this kind of stuff is Ericsson out of uh, one of the Scandinavian countries, I think maybe Denmark. Frankly, I would like to see the United States get back into the telecom business. I'd like to see, you know, Cisco making these things or somebody, some, you know, some American company and making them here in the United States. I am concerned about Huawei. With well, regard to the merger, that goes back to the Supreme Court adopting in 1973, I think it was, or maybe 76, adopting Robert Bork's theory that don't worry about corporate mergers unless it's going to increase prices to the consumer, which is a BS argument against anti-monopoly laws. You were going to say, Tony? Well, that's a step around from uh, antitrust regulations, the Borg, uh, yeah. the, that Borg Amendment. It's a total step around from the antitrust measures that we know that are in effect. But that being said, Huawei, 50% of their market is outside of China. Right. Um, the majority of their sales basically are in the U.K., in Canada. And quite frankly, none of the Canadians, none of them seem to be expressing these concerns. But at the same token, we all realized through Edward Snowden that our own government was spying on us and taking our data and our telephone information. Right. So just imagine so, what the Chinese government is doing. You've got an authoritarian regime there that's right up front about the fact that they're spying on everybody all the time. And if you get out of line, they'll kill you. I don't see how they would have a reach over here into a separate state if they felt that uh, they were... Okay, so they come in through your phone system. Your phone's on your local Wi-Fi system. On your local Wi-Fi system is your thermostat and your Alexa microphone and your the microphone in your phone and the camera in your phone. I, you know, I, I see a lot of potential for damage there. Tony, thank you for the call. Uh, we'll have to agree to disagree, I guess. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar. And look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? 
Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Welcome back. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do. Ellen Ratner's new book on the line with us is the former Ohio congressman and author of the book Sideswiped, Bob Nay. And Bob, welcome back. What's at the top of the news in your mind today? Well, thank you, Tom. The top of the news is a bit of a change. We don't know how dramatic yet or how dangerous, let me put it that way. And it's with Huawei, which is the Chinese major conglomerate company. As we all know, at one point in time, President Trump had put sanctions on Huawei, and it was in the interest of national security. Right. Now, now if, if I could just interrupt you, for people who don't know what we're talking about, Huawei not only is the, I believe, the second largest manufacturer of cell phones in the world, but also they make the equipment that run cell phone towers. They're the leading manufacturer of that for 5G networks. And the concern is that because Huawei you know, was launched with government money in China and has a really, really tight association with the Chinese military, that they may be spying on everybody who has a Huawei phone or they may be spying on any telephone traffic and data traffic that goes through cell phone tower networks that are using Huawei equipment. Back to you, Bob. Oh, yes, and that's a perfect description of it. And there is a fear, although Huawei phones are not used here extensively, they are used extensively in Europe and Canada. And there is a fear that the devices inherent in those phones, of course, just like you said, can be used for spying purposes. So in the interest of national security, the president made a big deal about it. Well, now, again, I wish I could give you more details, but we don't know more details yet. But the president said, well, certain items that are provided from the United States to Huawei for the productions of those phones, chips, etc., certain items, he said, they will let continue, but we don't know what they will let continue. Let me put it that way, and I know that sounds confusing, but this is sort of an erratic announcement of what's really a reversal. So Senator Warner had made a statement, and Senator Warner on the Democratic side had said, you know, look, this is interest of national security, remember that. And to dovetail, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican, came out and said that there will be a pushback on this if, in fact, it breaches some type of national security interest. Yeah, I hate to say it, but, you know, when Trump first came out and pointed this out, he was right. And now it looks like he caved to Chinese President Xi over at the G20, you know, because this was a big deal for Xi. So Xi probably sat down with him and said, hey, cut back on the sanctions on Huawei. And Trump was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. As you say, sir, you know, uh, may I have another, sir? Anyway. Yes, well, you're right. The art of the deal may be the art of China winning the espionage game. And here's the problem with this. Now, with doing this, well, let me just say, first of all, the trade issue with China, I think on itself, people who want fair trade in this country, they like the fact there's a pushback to China. That's always been inherent amongst a lot of workers, a lot of union members, and a lot of blue-collar workers. Democrats and Republicans. Oh, yes, absolutely. Now, here's the problem, though. If we begin now as a government to equate interests of trade and cutting deals with interests that other countries have on technology, that violates the aspect of trying to do trade deals. 
now this is this is mixing apples and oranges and it's not healthy at all because then that's deal cutting with other issues that aren't actually involved with trade and do you think this is because trump just wants a positive news yep. cycle he just wants to goose the stock market and he doesn't really understand all these issues in any kind of depth well, yes, Tom, because even though I love anybody that goes after China, look, I was a Bernie Sanders guy in Congress on trade, right? So I really like that aspect. However, the problem is when you go after something and you want a deal, you want a good deal, you know, right. and a fairly clean deal. And so I think with the president, it's the art of the deal, and it doesn't matter particularly, you know, to Hades with the details, because as long as there is a, quote, deal, because you know, Tom, and I know, if there's a deal, it's going to be the best deal ever seen in America's history. (laughs) That's how he will sell it, yeah. In other words, he just wants a deal. He doesn't care if it helps or hurts the United States, which is really a tragedy. Same thing with the Iranians. Mm -hmm. It's been announced by the Iranians that they're now going to exceed 300 kilograms and that's with the uranium. Right, they officially uh, did, actually. Yeah. And they've done it. And they're trying to get some type of concession, obviously, out of Europe because they were kicked out of the deal with America. Mm-hmm. But yet the president doesn't say, oh, there has to be a precondition, which he originally said with the Iranians. He's dropped all that. Now he just wants to sit down, which is interesting, although I think there ought to be a nuclear deal. It would be fascinating if the Iranians would sit down, which they won't now. But it would be fascinating to see what actually they'd ask for and how much he would actually give them to get quote, a deal, because then he would have Kim Jong-un, he would have the new NAFTA deal, and then he would have Iran as a deal, and China. And, right. and that completes his cycle of, you know, hey, I cut the deals, I held to the promise I said I would make. And you know the unfortunate part of this too, Tom, mm. with China? If he does cut a deal, and we have a giveaway that has nothing to do with trade, like Huawei, but if he does cut a deal, we're not going to know until after the election the effectiveness, economically even, of that deal. It's only the word that we're told. Wow. Okay. So what else is up, Bob? Well, looking with interest with the Kamala Harris tweet by Donald Trump Jr. concerning Senator Harris, which was just bizarre that he put it out. He did delete the tweet, but it was from an alt-right group. And it was interesting when he says that he put that tweet out about her racial mixture, whether she was truly black, you know, and about the Indian parts, South Mm -hmm. Asian Indian, not American Native Indian, of her ancestry. And he said, well, he was just asking the question, well, he's in the White House. You know, you can pick up a phone if you're in the White House or Congress, and you get any question answered you want. You don't have to tweet it out, yeah. repeating an all-right This is, tweet. you know, we saw the same thing when Obama was running, where the all-right and the Russian, well, I don't know if it was the Russians at the time, but, you know, there were people saying, oh, but he's got a white mother, you know, he's not really, and his father came from Nigeria, so he doesn't really understand the American black experience. These were purely attempts to divide the black community against right. a person of color, you know, against a candidate who really they should want and they do want to embrace i think it's, i think they fear her a bit i think yeah i, I think they do too i think the republicans yeah, fear kamala harris and i and i think it's Absolutely. despicable what they're doing thank you bob right thank you you're listening to tom hartman It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Donut Economics, brand new book by Kate Raworth, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And on page 21 in the Who Wants to Be an Economist chapter, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist, here they are. Whether you consider yourself an economic veteran or novice, now is the time to uncover the economic graffiti that lingers in all of our minds. If you don't like what you find, scrub it out, or better still, 
painted over with new images that far better serve our needs and times. The rest of this book proposes seven ways to think like a 21st century economist, revealing for each of those seven ways the spurious image that has occupied our minds, how it has come to be so powerful, and the damaging influence it has had. The time for mere critique is past, which is why the focus here is on creating new images that capture the essential principles to guide us now. The diagrams in this book aim to summarize that leap from old to new economic thinking. Taken together, they set out, quite literally, a new big picture for the 21st century economist. So here's a whirlwind tour of the ideas and images at the heart of donut economics. First, change the goal. For over 70 years, economics has been fixated on GDP, or national output, as its primary measure of progress. That fixation has been used to justify extreme inequalities of income and wealth, coupled with unprecedented destruction of the living world. For the 21st century, a far bigger goal is needed, meeting the human needs of every person within the means of our life-giving planet. And that goal is encapsulated in the concept of the donut. The challenge now is to create economies, local to global, that help to bring all of humanity into the donut's safe and just space. Instead of pursuing ever-increasing GDP, it's time to discover how to thrive in balance. Second, see the big picture. Mainstream economics depicts the whole economy with just one extremely limited image, the circular flow diagram. Its limitations have, furthermore, been used to reinforce a neoliberal narrative about the efficiency of the market, the incompetence of the state, the domesticity of the household, and the tragedy of the commons. It is time to draw the economy anew, embedding it within society and within nature and powered by the sun. This new depiction invites new narratives about the power of the market, the partnership of the state, the core role of the household, and the creativity of the commons. Third, nurture human nature. At the heart of 20th century economics stands the portrait of rational economic man. He has told us that we are self-interested, isolated, calculating, fixed in taste, and dominant over nature. And his portrait has shaped who we have become. But human nature is far richer than this. As early sketches of our new self-portrait reveal, we are social, interdependent, approximating, fluid in values, and dependent upon the living world. What's more, it is indeed possible to nurture human nature in ways that give us a far greater chance of getting into the donut's safe and just space. Fourth, get savvy with systems. The ironic crisscross of the market supply and demand curves is the first diagram that every economic student encounters, but it is rooted in misplaced 19th century metaphors of mechanical equilibrium. A far smarter starting point for understanding the economy's dynamism is systems thinking, summed up by a simple pair of feedback loops. Putting such dynamics at the heart of economics opens up many new insights, from the boom and bust of financial markets to the self-reinforcing nature of economic inequality and the tipping points of climate change. It's time to stop searching for the economy's elusive control levers and start rewarding it as an ever-evolving, complex system. Fifth, designed to distribute. In the 20th century, one simple curve, the Kuznets curve, whispered a powerful message on inequality. It has to get worse before it can get better, and growth will eventually even it up. But inequality, it turns out, is not an economic necessity. It is a design failure. 21st century economists will recognize that there are many ways to design economies to be far more distributive of the value that they generate, an idea best represented as a network of flows. 
It means that going beyond redistributing income to exploring ways to redistributing wealth, particularly the wealth that lies in controlling land, enterprise, technology, knowledge, and the power to create money. This century needs economic thinking that unleashes regenerative design in order to create a circular, not linear, economy and to restore humans as full participants to Earth's cyclical processes of life. Seventh, be agnostic about growth. One diagram in economic theory is so dangerous that it's actually never drawn. The long-term path of GDP growth. Mainstream economics views endless economic growth as a must, but nothing in nature grows forever. And the attempt to buck that trend is raising tough questions in high-income but low-growth countries. The book, Donut Economics. A couple of other things I wanted to bring your attention to. Welcome back to the program. Chennai, India, a city of 9 million people, is running out of water. As glaciers are melting around the world, these glaciers are the water reservoirs for many cities. They feed the Ganges, they feed the Yangtze, they feed many rivers that come out of mountainous regions of the world. And you combine that with the massive droughts that are happening in equatorial regions around the world. It's the, this five-year drought that has been hitting Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. The 114-degree temperatures in France a couple of days ago, the highest in, what, 600 years, as long as they've been keeping records. Now in India, 9 million people are praying for rain. We had five feet of hail in Mexico and Guadalajara. Here in Portland, Oregon yesterday, we had a tornado downtown. I mean, this stuff just doesn't happen. But it's happening now. We have climate insanity, and it's, it's caused by the fact that the world is a degree warmer than it was in 1980, which means that the atmosphere holds 6% more moisture, which means that storms are far more serious, and the jet stream is collapsing, which means that weather patterns stay in place rather than moving through. So a light, you know, what would normally be a rainstorm becomes a flood, and what would normally be a hot day becomes a drought. And this is all climate change. And meanwhile, what the Trump administration is doing is they're saying to their climate scientists, you guys are all going to have to move out to Kansas City or you get fired. Honest to God. On top of that, they're refusing to let their scientists, government employee scientists, go to conferences or talk about climate change. Last week, three EPA scientists were blocked from going to Rhode Island to make a presentation about climate change. I mean, this is insane. And then finally, another big piece of news here, Richard Neal, the uh, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, has finally, because he had to dot I's and cross T's and do all the legal stuff so that he would have a good chance of winning, uh, has sued for the Trump taxes. He's suing basically the IRS and Steve Mnuchin. You know, Mnuchin refusing to testify in this stuff, all of them refusing to testify. Go back to September 10, 1996, New York Times, an article by Stephen Labatum. The title, Susan McDougall Goes to Jail for Not Testifying on Clinton. Susan McDougall was sent to jail in Arkansas as she continued to defy in order to answer questions about her former Whitewater partner, Bill Clinton. Isn't there a lesson here for us? We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow.
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 